This is GamesAtWork.biz, your weekly podcast about gaming, technology, and play. Your hosts are Michael Martin, Andy Piper, and Michael Rowe. The thoughts and opinions on this podcast are those of the hosts and guests alone and are not the opinions of any organization which they have been, are, or may be affiliated with. This is episode 387, Metaverged. Welcome again to another edition of GamesAtWork.biz. This is one of your co-hosts, Michael Martin, and I am delighted to be joined today by another Michael, who you should know his voice pretty darn well, uh, Mr. Michael Rowe, co-host, co-founder, co-extraordinaire. How are you today, Michael? I, I am I am just peachy keen well, and we're missing our third co-host, Andy Piper, who is flying on a jet plane right now i think i think he's going to antarctica uh you know he he wanted some winter and i know it's summer down there it's it's spring down there uh in antarctica but it was cooler there than here it's a good place to go i suppose it's a a long (laughs) way back to the uk via antarctica it's a long way to tipperary i'm thinking uh, you know what else it's a long way to (laughs) it's a long way to figure out what to do with your stadia controller (laughs) <laughs> yeah we had a great discussion last week uh with uh, sorry you weren't on the show uh but we had uh eprad on and both ian and andy are big stadia users and were bemoaning the and bemoaning is probably too strong but they were talking about the yep. end of stadia uh and we 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 bemused on whether or not you'd be able to hack the stadia controller and use it with other devices and at the time we hadn't found a way yet and uh, found this article this week that actually describes people already figuring out how to do that. So uh, for our listeners who are Stadia users and want to figure out how to use their Stadia controller wirelessly with other platforms, nice little article from The Verge talking through uh, a couple of ways that people are doing it. I remember um, from the podcast there was um, a point where... Yes, for... Well, for they're they're reimbursing the hardware, not the right. platform fees, and I think even the oh, games. Hmm. But I'm not positive on that. It's it's they're not for the service, no. But for the other stuff that reimbursing, the nice thing here is instead of it becoming a paperweight, and I think Andy was talking about last week. You know, you could use it plugging in with a wire. This is wirelessly. Yeah, that would be so. Uh, that makes better. it useful. Maybe you could use it for trombone. Yes. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) So give that one a go for everybody. Um, All right. Well, awesome. Uh, We've got some good fun stories about the the metaverse today and starting things off with the meta metaverse um, on verse. No, verge. Uh, Verge. That's our second verge article in a row. (laughs) Uh, Talking about Horizon Worlds. And I remember looking at this, too, here where there were some complaints i suppose about folks in meta using the metaverse app itself i i actually really like this article because um as as uh, part of a team that uses its own tools to develop yeah. its own tools i think it's critically important that if you are claiming to create a platform that others can use for business usage or day-to-day productive usage you should use that platform for that yourselves. You should, you know, some people call it eating your own dog food, drinking your own champagne. What this says is 
the the team within Meta that is working on Horizon Worlds platform uh, are frustrated with it, just like their users. And the head of development is saying, "Look, use it more." figure out what the problems are, experience it that others experience it, and use that as a, a rallying cry really to improve it ourselves, right? So uh, to me, when I saw this article, I, I knew people were going to say, oh yeah, it's so horrible, and now you know they're so bad they don't even use it themselves. To me, it's the exact opposite. This says we're making a big enough commitment that we're going to use it ourselves and force ourselves to use it even through the bad times in order to improve it to such point that it then becomes of value. Yeah, I, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. And it, it, I would think it also creates a proof point here too, that the the Horizon Worlds uh, it not only is something you can fall in love with, but it's, but it's actually useful for the use cases that have been envisioned for it. And what better way to figure that out is than by actually using it for its intended purposes. Using and it. And finding out that, hey, you know what, <laughs> this, that, or the other is not working quite the way that it should. And since you own the dev environment, fix it. Well, what what I find really interesting, however, and and and, and you see this with different companies, and it's it's a mm-hmm. company mindset. Um, the the companies that don't use the early release stuff of their own tools, right? Uh, Apple's a big famous one, right? Uh, I I know people at Apple who they're not allowed to touch the betas. Right, even the public betas, they're not allowed to touch it. And and the thing is, if you're sitting there saying we want to leverage this great stuff that's coming out, wouldn't you want to test it yourselves? Is are you saying that your business is so critical that your changes can't break it, but you want other businesses to use the pre-releases and get it good enough to make sure that it's yeah. productive ready? Right, so it's a different mindset between kind of a I I I don't want to say a startup versus uh, a, an established company. I don't want to say you know the hacker ethos versus the staid professional. But th- there's a, there's a mindset here, and and I think it's maybe developers versus users, on yeah. um, you know or developments versus operations. Let's let's make it a DevOps argument, right? Operations doesn't want to change anything. If it ain't broke, don't right, fix it. Right, cuz you're introducing change right? don't which touch is going to create it. a problem. Your yeah. change is bad. Don't I want any change in my production environment because any change is bad. Uh, if you're a developer, you're in a constant state right. of change. Even even my little simple app, I and I didn't get it this summer and I'm really disappointed cuz I just haven't had time, but I try to keep current on APIs. And every release of the operating system or the development tools has a potential impact on APIs. Yes, I could run my code in iOS 14 mm-hmm. mode, but I force it to go to 16, right? I, each summer, I try to force it to the current stuff. That is, that is self-inflicted change, but it also keeps you thinking about new things, keep, keeps you kind of the wonderment of being a little kid of learning new stuff, right? Uh, and And... Operations, no change is the best thing. Keep it working, don't change a thing. Development, change is the best thing because it means you have something to do. <laughs> if you there, if there's no change, no new requirements, no nothing, why do you have a development team? Uh, that's uh, you know part of that um, the creative tension that's always supposed to be there. I, I like the fact that you're dealing with your technical debt before. 
operating in. Oh, yeah. Oh, and I've seen things that have significant technical yeah, debt. Well, I mean, if you operate in, in that sort of uh, emulation mode, you know, for a while, sure, that works just fine until it doesn't. For a while. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, well, well, speaking of emulation mode. Well, yeah, exactly. So, so t- <laughs> or technical so Terrence debt. Eden uh, has a blog post from uh, earlier in September. Um, Asking the pointed question I love of, this. would you go to the job center or DMV in the metaverse? And um, th- this was a really intriguing thing to to, uh, to take advantage of Horizon Worlds and think about that a little bit. And it's a it's a evaluation about um, what government services could or should be in the metaverse. So I I liked it too. And I, and I thought that he had actually come up with some really great suggestions in the end where he said, you know, if you're a government inspector of one sort or another, um, it, do you actually need to physically be in the environment to be able to do the inspection that you need to do? Um, in some cases, I would say yes, because you really yes. kind of do. Uh, but in need to see yeah, the thing you you're inspecting. It. You need to <laughs> move it around. Um, but on the flip side, could you have a um, your disembodied eyes in the form of a drone or a robot or something do the zipping around the environment uh, that you're doing the inspecting of? And um, could you do that on a regular basis or, or, or maybe a random basis that you couldn't actually predict? That might be a cost savings and a speed element. So I like it. Maybe you could inspect a gas line and uh, with a camera and a drone and everything and be fine, but you might not smell it, right? <laughs> so it depends on the sensors. Yeah. <laughs> but no, I, I, I thought this was a really good article. The, the thing that I thought about it that was interesting was um, how the UI needs to be presented in such a way that it becomes consumable for the different types sure. of users, mm-hmm. right? Uh, so so uh, the, whole, the whole point of... Um, how do you visualize all this content that if you're an inspector and you're going in to inspect the books, right, you might reach into a file cabinet and flip through a bunch of pieces of paper to find something and pull it out. If you're not used to file cabinets because you've been on a computer your whole life, uh, files and file systems may even be hidden from you. So how do you present that in a consumable way? And and that got me thinking to, to our next article, which is all about the underlying operating system that needs to be put in place for managing a metaverse, right? What, what does that really need? To, if we're going to have a metaverse, what are those building blocks, those components that need to be put together to make something real that becomes a metaverse that's not just a single vendor's tool and and those thoughts of use cases that we had at the first article right on meta using its own stuff this one about the types of services that you need and then ultimately how do you put that all together into this soon maybe one day global thing called a metaverse and what does that operating system need to have what are the services that need to be exposed etc kind of got me thinking of of how do we pull this together right we you and i and andy we've been here before more than once (laughs) we we yeah more than once we we looked at how do you put something together that becomes a metaverse and so 
what what did you think about this article? I know it was it was uh, a bit long, uh, but I thought uh, very very good. Uh, what 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 was your thoughts on this article on the operating system of the metaverse? Yeah, from well, Hacker so Moon? several. So the carry forward from the prior article and into this one deals with things like file system, that user today does not think in file systems much like the user of the past wasn't necessarily thinking about assembly code so an operating system is designed by its very nature to um, serve as an isolation layer for what is going and get where you where you need to be so i will go back to a topic i've used on the podcast, and that was the Apple Newton concept of the data soup. And the data soup was don't care where the thing is, but when I want it, just bring it. Right. So, this concept of recency, I think, is pretty good. This concept of I normally put things in this place, right, in a 3D spatial environment makes sense. I mean, if you look at my desk right now, I've got it covered in stickies of various and sundry colors, uh, th- you know, 3M stickies, right? Um, you, you don't have any, any, any built-in software stickies in, in your UI on your desktop? Not in my current environment, no. I, I use other solutions for that sort of thing. But I've got all these stickies everywhere. They make sense to me. They wouldn't make sense to you, they wouldn't make sense to somebody else, but I can lay my hands quickly on, oh, that's right, I have uh, this version of my little it's a handy-dandy thing to talk about agile squads and tribes and the nature of uh, the funnel that serves them. So I can just lay my hands on it and show it to someone through the camera. Boom, got it. So to me, this concept of how do I make the objects and the data that underpins those objects available and make it make sense to me in a 3D spatial environment is absolutely crucial to the notion of a metaverse that can span different world structures. So I I liked the article and the way that it was described. The notion of being open source, open source metaverse project, letter acronym with four letters um, is good, but uh, are we going to be fully there where everyone subscribes to it? Mm, you, know, you know, that, that of course is part of our. So, so here's a couple of thoughts. Um, one of the earlier, I won't say early, uh, earlier attempts at this was leveraging the technology behind Second Life. And there was a project, if you remember, called OpenSim. And the whole idea of OpenSim was to open source and create a set of compatible API calls. So things that you could do on Second Life could be done on this OpenSim so that any company, any group could stand up their own SIM, which in Second Life term was an island, right? and then you could knit those together into a larger space or place, right? Um, so when you think about some of the current solutions uh, have have tended to be in the metaverse, uh, more like virtual browsers, right? 
uh, to your uh, apple Newton soup idea where you don't care where the thing is. You just want a pointer to it and be able to get it and yep. pull it, right? To identify and and display or render that object. Uh, what services do we need to have from an open metaverse environment at the core services layer, which ones can be abstracted away and which ones can just be pointed to through some kind of rendering engine. And, and what I'm thinking about when you look at an operating system, there are certain core services that talk to uh, the BIOS, yep. right? There are certain core services that handle timing between the chip uh, and uh, a, a process for a timer. I mean, something simple, right? Or, or how fast do we refresh the screen, right? There are core services in the kernel, and then there are other services that you abstract. Uh, I'm wondering if we have a good definition yet of what the core services must be for something to be a metaverse. Well, I'm sure if we looked long enough, we would find a few, you know, ideas on that concept, right? Um, but it won't have universal agreement because that's exactly the whole point, right? You know, groups will have different ideas about what they've created and what they've done and what it makes sense to that will. But even if you take all the different Venn diagrams, yeah. uh, whether that's the, the Horizon World, uh, Unreal Engine, Apple uh, Reality OS, or whatever it's going to be called, etc. If you overlaid all those Venn diagrams, there will be, I would think, there'd have to be some core set of services that they all achieve or, or require. Just like when you think of a web sure. browser, there are a certain core set of services that were taken over by W3C to define that, right? Uh, or, or if you think about um, just a, a PC, right? There are core services that were put down in that layer, uh, the kernel layer that went down into the, to the chip, right? I, I haven't seen a good definition of those core services yet. I think that is kind of the, the starting point that we have to get to in uh, a metaverse definition before we can talk about the operating system sitting on top of it. But really, really interesting thought. Uh, like you said, um, we've kind of gone through these ideas through the last three articles, and there are things that need to be addressed. Um, and I can't wait to see that play out. And maybe, just maybe this time, we'll get to that core set of services. Yeah. Well, we'll, we'll see. Uh, or maybe we won't, and we'll have this discussion again in the next 10 years. And we'll do it again yeah. <laughs> another 20 years. <laughs> um, so the, the next website that we've got here, Michael, is one I have not had a chance to play with that much, but it has some intriguing... Uh, uh, and I've seen some of the ePred tweets from even today on um, uh, all of the visual and um, operational kinds of things that you can do from um, from his gaming grid. So, what is character.ai do so, so 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 let's talk about character.ai so so i've seen this over the last couple of uh I think two weeks now i've i've heard hints of it and earlier this week i finally got a chance to play with it uh so so what character ai allows you to do is to dynamically generate um character interactions verbal 
text-based character interactions. That's the area that I'm going to focus on. There are other features too. Um, and you start by creating a character and providing it with some basic, simple uh, parameters. And everything after that is made up. Now, uh, I created, and uh, we'll have a link in the show notes, uh, a, a gamesatwork.biz character. Um, and I defined it as I am gamesatwork.biz. I was born in January 2012. I talk about gaming, business, and technology. That was the only input I provided to it. And if you've been a long-time listener to this podcast, you know that our first episode of gamesatwork.biz was in January of 2012. So 10 years ago now, um, more, yeah. more than 10 years. And so uh, I'll, I'm just going to read you a couple of real simple interactions. The first thing I said was, tell me about your podcast. And then it goes, the Games at Work podcast is a show full of topics and discussions on gaming, business, technology, and more. I interview a lot of game video, video game developers and business leaders, and we dive into topics. And I was like, well, that's, that's actually pretty That's accurate pretty good, yeah. <laughs> uh, I said well cool uh, talk to me about any game developers you've talked to and so evidently uh, there are like four famous game developers we've talked to I don't remember any of these interviews but I, it would have been great um, Eric Barone the creator of Stardew Valley Stardew yeah Chris Tyler the designer of Populous Bill Roper the designer of World of Warcraft and Mike Action the developer of Call of Duty do you remember those interviews um. <laughs> completely <laughs> slipped my mind. Yeah, so the key thing is everything the characters say is made up. <laughs> but you can you can feed it a little bit of information and it does a pretty good job of staying within that domain and that context and dynamically generates content for you. Now, um, it's 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 kind of fun to play with. You, you have to remember, like I said, that it, it is made up, but you can create rooms, you can create feeds, you can create chats, and just have a discussion going with these. And it's all using an AI engine to, to generate that. There's games that people have developed out uh, hmm. on it, um, including text adventures, all driven through this, this AI. And I thought it was a fantastic example of how we're moving down this path, right? We started with, uh, with stable fusion, yeah. right? Um, we, we have then gone on to, uh, well, even before that, we've got these text type interactions. Uh, it was announced this week, and I can't remember where I saw the link, uh, that uh, Meta and Google and others are all doing, give me a seed and I'll yeah, create a exactly. video. Right. So, so, so you have all these different content generation tools that are starting to be created again as specialized AI models that put together may get us to something more of a generalized AI model. In this case, an entertainment one that could create a dynamically generated world with, with interactions that uh, allow you to play with them and, and interact. So I, I thought this was really cool. Uh, and uh, we'll have a link to the games at work.biz chatbot uh, in the show notes. And, and see what you, you find Ask out. them anything. And just remember, everything it says up. will be something it says. <laughs> yes, you, you is know, made with, with all the so. kind of chatbots that exist today for various and sundry things, um, it's intriguing that we have one here that's completely made up. But um, uh, just looking at what you shared in the text earlier before the show, um, this is not your, <laughs> this is not Eliza, right? <laughs> 
this is not Eliza. No, this is, this much, is better much better than Eliza. Than Eliza. <laughs> but but the question, I guess, here is ingesting a website and having an AI that says, okay, I know everything there is to know about this retail store. Right? Why not? You know, and why wouldn't that be something that something like this could go do too? Should be, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, those exist. And, and we've, those exist we've talked about that in the yeah. past, right? And, and you have ones that can take and read a person's online um, world, everything they've done online, and then generate a chatbot with that person uh, for, you know, in memoriam. Yep. So, yep. And, and listen to all of the podcasts cool. that we've ever done, and the, there could be a virtual one for you. Yeah. Um, so let's go to Ars Technica and let's go to the point of yes. uh, doing some other interesting visual items here where you're taking games. Gosh, was it from 19? 19- um, that's what it looks like, 1993, yes. and and p- passing it through the same kind of filters for stable diffusion, and through stable diffusion, yep. real video. Well, at least not maybe yeah. not real yeah. video. Yeah, so this but is pictures, this is uh, right? It's Virtua Fighter is the example. Uh, a guy took a lot of the old uh, blocky 3D character animations from it, uh, and and used tools like stable diffusion, etc. To upscale them to what they would look like now. And what I found really interesting, there's a set of about 10 pictures that you can go through and it shows the the, the block version of the character and kind of what they look like if you upscaled them. The, the bodies and the positioning kind of looks cartoony, but most of them, the face looks real. Yeah. Right? So, so it shows you how these well, models and elements, these... Right? Uh, well... It, it does a good job because it has more content there that could be used directly, right? If, if you know how they work, that is something, a face is a face. That's a little bit easier to capture and scan. So very, very cool. There's, like I said, there's uh, roughly 10 pictures, maybe a little less, uh, that show many of the different characters from Virtua Fighter. Very, very awesome. cool. Awesome. So we're going to wrap up with one last example of ancient tech well maybe not ancient it's only you know 100 years old 1800s right france using cameras to create a 3d image of whatever it is that you want to take a picture of what got me here is this is a great example is a 3d they set up 24 cameras they take a picture all 24 cameras at the same time and they use that to slice out 2d strips to create a 3d physical yeah. model right and as soon as I saw this, the number one thing that popped in my mind was bullet time. So if you remember the movie Matrix, what was so cool about Matrix, right, was that bullet time where they would freeze the action and they would spin the camera around the person and then show you something flying through the scene. The way that was done was with about 24 cameras circling the character and filming it from all angles and then knitting it together in real in the rendering of the movie yeah, and eliminating the cameras in the so, background so yes this is bullet time but for a picture back in 18 what was it 18 i want to say 1880s or something like that Mid-18. um uh, doesn't have the exact date but 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 basically this is exactly what they did they took that they took the 2D slices quote printed them out in wood block glued them together, and then smoothed the sides to make it a 3D sculpture of a person. So this was 3D, and and I used to have a 3D turntable 
that allowed me to scan devices in or objects in that I could then print out on my 3D printer. Same technology, 100 plus years earlier. Very cool. Um, the, the last thing that I noticed on this and I didn't click through is that apparently in the late 1800s, the, the according to this article, everything that was necessary to create a laser was available. So you could have laser printed it. Yeah. Light. <laughs> Light was available. Lenses. <laughs> Lenses. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, very well, cool. that brings us. To well, time. I know yeah. we are out of time. And, and we ask you, if you enjoyed what you heard today, uh, go to gamesatwork.biz, comment on this show, or hit us up on Twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz. See you next time. Bye. You've been listening to gamesatwork.biz, the podcast about gaming technology and play. We are part of the Blueberry Podcasting Network, and would like to thank the band Random Encounters for their song, Big Blue. You can follow us on Twitter at gamesatwork underscore biz or at our website at gamesatwork.biz. Mm-hmm.